Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S. and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends. We welcome you once again to Now Appalachia. We are heard here courtesy of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network and available anywhere you like to find podcasts. I'm your host, Elliot Parker, and it's great to have you with us for another edition of the program today. And I'm so delighted to have um, Kentucky author Christopher Kelder with us here today to talk to us about his new book. It is called The Secret of Cobb Creek a Depression-era story of Eastern Kentucky, and he joins us today. He was born and raised in Lexington, Kentucky. He's taught writing seminars at the Carnegie Center, and he's also briefly worked as a journalist. He began screenwriting and filmmaking in 2010 and has won both Best Film and Best Director awards. He has also completed four feature-length screenplays to date, as well as three picture books for children. So he very much is a prolific author and author of a variety of different genres. And we're glad to have him with us today to talk to us about his new book, The Secret of Cobb Creek. So Christopher, welcome to Now Appalachia. Great to have you on the program today. Thank you very much. It's it's an honor to be on. So I wanted to ask you first, before we get to, to talking a little bit about the book, because you've been a screenwriter and you've done some work in film, when you're doing that kind of work as a writer and a creator, how is some of that similar and different to writing uh, writing a book or writing a more uh, traditional, what we would consider uh, a, a piece of nonfiction? How how are some of the skills and things that you do with screenwriting? So that's, a, that's a very good question that I look I'm looking forward to answering. And so um, it's interesting. Uh, my uh, my local mechanic was working my car, and I gave him a copy of the book, and he said. Uh, it reads just like a movie, <laughs> you know? And so my prose, I used to like Ernest Hemingway because it's a very simple sentence structure. Uh, it wasn't like, you know, some people that just involve imagery and all, you know, that's descriptions. And and so uh, the, the interesting thing is when you write a screenplay, it's in present tense. When you write a book, it's in past tense. And so what I find is when I'm, when I'm going from book to screenplay, I'm like, I'm going and said noticed. I'm like, it's notices or... You know, it's always active in a screenplay. And if you take the books in past tense, it's going to present tense. You kind of got to watch your, your your verbs and that sort of thing. But it's very interesting because, say, I just checked out the book thief. The book thief, it's like 500 pages long, made into a movie. And I consider myself very lucky because as, as a, an author turned screenwriter, my screenplays are almost verbatim. My book's verbatim from the book. Because they're they're short novels, they're not three hundred wieldy, four hundred page things. I have to sift and through and and sort of disseminate information. How am I going to put it in? It's um, I've never fe- spent more than three weeks making a, writing a feature length screenplay because it's just. Uh, but I tell people it just when you, after you write for a while, it just flows. And uh, I'll get into a little bit about my writing process. Uh, I don't have an internal editor. You know, so if you have this little red flag in your brain about every fourth word, is that the right one? And just like, good luck, you know, being creative. And so I don't, I just write, 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 get everything out. But when I get an idea for either a book or a movie, I have this whole flood of information, especially a movie. I see the whole movie in my mind, in the locations, the characters speaking. And it's just like transcribing what I see in my mind or in my heart just onto the paper. 
And I, you know, I first wrote, it was difficult, you know, like writing and rewriting and just, you know, I'm not as positive. And now it's just pure joy because um, I get an idea and it's just, uh, I can safely say every, every, every film I've made, it's just what I visualized came up on the screen after it was all said and done. Fantastic. That, that's a great explanation. And I'm so glad that you, you, you kind of parsed that out to, to, for <laughs> us to be able to see the, the similarities and differences. That's great. And in terms of coming up with ideas for, for this particular book, I know uh, the impetus and the information came from uh, 1931. So your book is set in 1931 in Pikeville, but it's based on stories that your mother told you about growing up there during the depression. So that's tell correct. us a little bit about your, about your mother and what was her life like uh, living in so, my, um, my mom was uh, salt of the earth. Uh, she was born in 1934. Um, very challenging. Uh, she didn't have a father. It was an all-female ho- household. It was her grandmother, her aunt, and her mom, and her and her cousin, all females. And uh, this big depression, like they took in laundry, they canned. If you had an apple tree, you made applesauce. You know, it was just a hand-to-mouth existence. And you're you're lucky you went to school. You worked on the farm, and and so uh, she was the first person in her family to graduate from high school. And uh, I remember her telling me she uh, she had a play that she wrote that like the theater program put on in in uh, at Pikeville High School. And she's always said she wanted to be a director, you know, which is interesting because I became a film director, and she was like a, a theater director, play director. And uh, she came to the University of Kentucky in the late fifties to study social work because she knew that people in the mountains were often needy as she was. And uh, so uh, it's, I wouldn't say this is a misnomer, call me an Appalachian author because I have a book set in Appalachia, but I've only been there once in my entire life to Pikeville. And uh, people in Appalachia who are reading this are gonna find this to be a very sort of shocking thing. My dad's a New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the story. My father uh, was from upstate New York in the Catskill Mountains, 90 miles north of New York City. And it's very rich, just like Appalachia. There's farms and rolling hills and, uh, you know, a lot of land and stuff like that. And he had the opportunity to come down and work at the IBM plant, which opened like 56 or 57 in Lexington. It's Lexmark now. And he came down 1958, entry-level job working for IBM. And uh, and so one night uh, after he was working for IBM, mom was going to UK. They met. And so I get married. She left school and I got married. I'm one of one of six kids from uh, that marriage. And and so what happened was this thing about being from Lexington, um, after sixth grade, we had like a family meeting, which is very unusual. We didn't have many family meetings. And and dad said uh, there was a, a master's degree program for executives at IBM. He was like third level management, manufacturing. He I, I didn't know much about what he did with five kids. You know, he was so busy, but years, I, mean, I remember him saying once, he had to know how many typewriter parts to order or I had typewriters they make the next month. He's a logistics guy, you know. But I'm like the one, I'm like the RD guy. They're all business. I'm the one RD business, you know, like writer, poet, and all that, filmmaker guy. And so we moved up close to New York City. He went to Columbia University to get a master's degree. He only had a high school diploma. It's like going to Harvard on a high school diploma, Ivy League school. He had to take a lot of tests and stuff and got in and he worked full time. He was in like white planes. He was on sitting board of directors, direct, board of director meetings of IBM and uh, very accomplished in his career, got his master's degree. And so this is something I tell some people in Pikeville and it just, they just, it just rolls off their back when I tell them this. So the first day of class, I, well, people are just surprised when I like come from Kentucky because I don't have much of an accent. I don't know if you notice my accent. So I got rid of my accent because they were, they were making fun of me being from Kentucky. So I think 
I think pretty much I said, like, well, hi, I'm Chris from Lexington. How are you all? You know, well, they were hooting and hollering. Who's this dumb hick from Kentucky? You know, you've never been to school before. And so a guy walked to me the first day of class. And he said, uh, we heard you got indoor plumbing if you're back down there in Kentucky. I'm like, Mom, I want to go home. You know, like we had running water, electricity. And they think about the worst of Appalachia, outhouses. And you, you don't go to school. You can't read and write. And so my saving grace was um, I've always been a natural athlete. Uh, I was a really good basketball player. And that sort of made me popular. And uh, and so I, I don't know if you noticed my bio. Years later, I became a tennis pro. And the thing is, I'm a better basketball player. I'm just a natural. I was a better basketball player, much better basketball player than a tennis pro. And I was like, uh, I was a turn pro, I was a ten- teaching pro. And so uh, we lived there for two years, went to Boulder, Colorado. After he's got his degree, there was an IBM plan out there. And then I came back for three years in high school and then uh, wrote for the high school newspaper three years. And that's when I wasn't sort of like a, I wouldn't say a dumb jock, so to speak, but I wasn't, in, I was a B student, you know, but I wasn't like, uh, couldn't wait to go home and do homework on the National Honor Society list or something. But I was, a pretty, I was smart enough to get B's at a college prep school. And, uh, but I wrote three years for high school, the, the high school newspaper. And then I was like, things are by becoming a writer. And I was a journalism major, a communications major, an English major, University of Kentucky. And uh, was like an impatient, rebellious, want to be Ernest Hemingway, like a little, you know, like overnight and left school. And, and writing didn't work out right after college. And I played number one for the high school team. And I was a really good player. I went to a tennis team. And uh, he said, if you, if you work here part time at the club, you can teach with pros and, and get certified to teacher. And that's what I did. I was sort of USPA certified pro. Did that for 15 years. Coached at Transylvania University one year, assistant coach. Uh, I taught at Georgetown College. I ran a tournament at the University of Kentucky Bluegrass Championships. I'm very burned up being a tennis pro and became a writer. And um, I have my 13th book coming out soon. And uh, 2010, started making inspirational movies and a feature land projects on the shelf with a producer. And that's, uh, that's kind of it in a nutshell. And fantastic. And what I want to ask you about uh, chapter two in your book, because that's where we really start to see things uh, coming forward. And uh, uh, John is a character that we meet uh, in chapter two, and he's traveling to Pikeville. We've been talking about Pikeville a little bit a moment ago, uh, which was pretty mountainous. And he's pretty worried about going to Pikeville. Why is he worried? I think, about I, think, I, think I think the word I used was apprehensive. You yes, know. he's apprehensive. So, so he's never been to Eastern Kentucky. He's never seen the mountains, you know, and just like when I went there, I'll just tell you this real quick. One of my mom's last surviving cousins passed away that she was closest to. And I said, mom, you know, I'll go to the funeral if you want. She's very comforted. I've never been there. So I'm putting on a suit before we go. And she gives me this strange look. She goes like, you're going to wear a suit. And I said, well, sure. I want to pay my respects." She said, we're going to think you're putting on airs, Chris, if you wear a suit. So, well, I wear one anyway. So we're driving uh, all the way through the mountains and we were maybe two thirds of the way. And she said like, oh, there's a call for, a call for some kind of sit town coming up. And I, I said, you know, I wasn't used to all these Eastern Kentucky expressions, you know, from being from Lexington. And I said, well, what does that mean? And she was kind of defense, you know, a little defensive about, cause she didn't have a happy as a childhood. She said, oh, that just means like, like Prestonsburg's coming up. There's a call for it. So we finally get there after drawing like three hours to the mountains. And it was just the way people described, you know, I've been there, this tiny little, almost a village or town surrounded by mountains I, I joke with people I was almost claustrophobic I was there for like 10 minutes because I just it just hills all around we went to this small funeral home and I was the only person wearing a suit and um, so I knew a little bit like like Pentecostals and like uh, Baptist you know and everything well 
this wasn't a funeral. This was a Baptist, you know, fire and brimstone sermon, you know, and, and so people like hysterical and wailing and crying. And, and uh, I was like, I wasn't used to that kind of funeral, more reserved. And, and so uh, I, I met the widow and kind of paid my respects, met a few people. And then, uh, you know, I just said, mom, you know, we'll just head on home. It was a long drive. And so we're getting ready to leave. And there's like a Bob Evans outside of Pinephone. She's like, well, this wasn't here when I was a kid. This is Bob Evans. Like, this is a big deal, Bob Evans and Pikeville. So I walked in my suit. Everyone just turned and stared at me walking to Bob Evans. Like, you know, who is this person wearing a suit in Pikeville? And, and they probably thought I owned a coal mine or was a doctor or a lawyer. And I had some biscuits or gravy and something, came back home. And that's the only time I've been to Pikeville in my entire life. And that's my impression was it just very small town and and now I was talking to my film producer and she said, like, Chris, there's U-Pike and there's a medical center and it's all built up. And and it wasn't there when I it wasn't like that when I went there. Very good. Very good. And what is John going to Pikeville to do? So what happens is um, I'll ruin the in the first chapter. He meets with Dale Fisher, who's the head of the English department, at the University of Kentucky. He's helping with a job search because he's just finished his doctoral thesis and he's got his Ph.D. And. Uh, there are no job offers. He cannot find any jobs teaching the college level. But he says, my, my younger sister, Susan, runs a new elementary school in Pike County, in Pikeville. They've just lost a teacher unexpectedly, and you'll be money coming in, and you'll be teaching in your field, and he needs a job, and he's just uh, just gotten his PhD, and he goes to meet Susan Fisher at the elementary school to find about the job, and that's I think that's chapter two. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So, uh, yeah. Very good. And I love it as the story unfolds, not only do we get a lot of sense of, of the place of Pikeville as a place, but we get a sense of some of the kids that are involved uh, in the school and in the community. And there were three that you uh, wrote about in, in chapter six, I loved because they had to be, they were given an assignment to read some poetry. And there were three students, Jonathan James, Kathy Lynn, and Jack Wayne. And Jack Wayne probably would have been and acted a lot like me when I was asked to read poetry when I was that age. But they have such an interesting dynamic and they respond to the assignment so differently. And I think that gives us a lot of uh, insight into uh, what growing up in that community was like. So can you talk a little bit about Jonathan, Kathy and Jack and how they all kind of react to this poetry assignment that they've been given and how they view poetry as kind of a, a genre or a, a project that they've been tasked to uh, undertake? Um, so what happens is in the, the version I sent you, there are there are five of the children of the 11 that kind of, they, they bond with him. And they all have at the end, they, it plays out the five, he, the five he bonds with read their poems on the last day of school after they learned how to read and write poetry. And I'll try, I'll skip around a little bit. We'll, we'll kind of go backwards. But um, what I did was I called artistic license. So unfortunately there were, there were colored schools then. Uh, and I'm like, no, I'm, you know, I'm putting an African American in this school anyway, because they they were in colored schools. And he's one of the smartest and wants to be a writer, you know, and he reads his poem, I'm an old oak tree, uh, metaphorical poem. Uh, Kathy Lynn, she wants to be a writer. She bonds with them. She reads, at, uh, she reads her, I think it's at year's end. She reads that and everything. Uh, and then Jonathan James, he has uh, problems at home. With his parents, you know, maybe they're going to get divorced and they're not paying attention to him. And his is just a heartfelt poem of just uh, a bleeding heart, just like uh, they can't, they don't pay any attention to me. Like, you know, I'm getting no attention at home, no, no, the love I need. Uh, 
And so uh, these, the, the people, the, the way I kind of I wrote it was, um, it's a progression of not knowing anything about poetry, little formal education, simple rhyming poetry, but also by the end of the year and along the way, it's rhyming. And then it's like, after he has mentored them and led them by the hand and, and all of a sudden he's not the big city professor the defensive about, and he's like their friend, like they're empowered. They're empowered to write pretty good poetry for 1931 for like a 10, 11 or 12 year old with little formal education. I was really honoring my mom, the people there, because unfortunately they don't always get respect they deserve. They're the, they're the potential and stuff. We're speaking with author and screenwriter and film director Christopher Kelder on this edition of Now Appalachia. We're talking with him about his new book, The Secret of Cobb Creek, a Depression-era story of Eastern Kentucky. And Christopher, we'll come back to the uh, book in just a second, but you touched a little bit on, on the writing process and your writing process a moment ago. So I want to ask you this, this sort of a sociological question, uh, having you having been uh, from Kentucky and spent a lot of time there. What is something that most people outside of Kentucky do you think get wrong about Kentucky or about people that live there or people that call that they place? think you have a little education basically uh if I went if I go up to um you know if I say something like a sort of a kind-hearted joke about Appalachia they take it at face value so I was talking I was at a local park the other day and this guy said to him, I'm going hacking and I was like you're 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 hacking a computer and he said like I'm just joking. I was joking with my cousin, like he, he was hiking, but they say like Packville or hack, you know, hacking, you know? So I was just joking with her and she's like, really? Like, I mean, you couldn't understand what he was even saying. And so somebody in Kentucky, my family, somebody from there, they, they just, I mean, it's just a, a friendly little joke, but somebody from New York, I think it was, there was a, uh, something my cousin posted. It was, uh, they, it was, unfortunately, there's like methadone lab that, well, someone posted in a, in a commercial that they had busted a meth lab and they, they put math lab and like they, they shared it on Facebook because like we don't have spell, you know. So it's that kind of thing that disparaging that could be blown out of proportion. Somebody up there, if they came down and went to Lexington, it's not such a big deal. But if they went to Appalachia, they probably couldn't understand a word people were saying because it'd be like, Hey guys, uh, let's have a beer. Come over here. Let's go over. To, let's go have the bar. You know, have a yeah. You know. And there, it's just very slow, a southern drawl, and and uh, I can talk like either because I've I've been in New York City. I've, I've I have family in upstate New York, but I'm right in the middle. I'm not really southern or northern because I was a southerner who became who kind of changed a northern accent not to be fun made fun of. And but a friend of mine said today, he said, "Yeah, I can tell some words like you're you're born red Kentucky. You're not getting away from it." So. <laughs> very good very good and you mentioned Ernest Hemingway as being a, a writer that uh you like to pattern yourself after and whose style that you really like who are some other authors that influence or inspire you um you know what's interesting is um as like an organic writer the reason I became a writer wasn't because I was a well-read person it was because I just I, almost every other day I would just get ideas for stories to write and that was my input my inspiration was like I just felt compelled as a creative person to get them down on paper and format them, get an editor and to write the books and everything. But um, I liked, uh, I, li I liked like, um, let's see, I'm trying to think, uh, what's his name? Uh, I'm trying to think. I, I liked a lot of mysteries in the day. Um, my brother liked a lot of near wolf books. Um, as a kid, I would write, there was a, there was a, there were these books uh, called uh, Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators. 
Uh, I like those books. I would read uh, Reader's Digest, but I'm not one of these people with a, a, a whole literary tradition in my brain, having read everything of Mark Twain and Charles Dickens and, and this whole traditional literature because I didn't finish my degree. And I'm just sort of a, I guess I'm just a natural born storyteller. And I, I probably can't give you, a, 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 if I thought about it, I could give you a list, but I. Totally understand. No, I totally understand. You've got some really, some really good. It's been a while I mean, since I've had a time to read because I've been so busy writing. That's that's true. And, and I know that is a challenge that all authors face is how much time do you spend reading and writing and marketing and all of that? And how do you juggle all of that? So that that is that is a, a very good point to raise there. And we're speaking with Christopher Kelder on this episode of Now Appalachia. His new book is called The Secret of Cobb Creek, a Depression era story of eastern Kentucky. And Christopher, we'll go back to this to the book just for just a second. I want to ask you about some of the poems that you've included in the book. One of my favorites was A Fairy's Child. Uh, that you included in the book. How and why did you decide to include those poems in that in the in your book? How did you make that decision of, of what to include and where to put them and all well, of that? Well, first of all, you have to use poems that are in the, in the public domain, which is 75 years or older. So I was careful. It was sometimes it was close. It was like 1930 or something. It was set in 1931. And I just did like a, a, a one line and did a search for all the different ones. And I chose the ones that I felt were a best fit for that age group and that literacy level, you know, that level of education. And these are just little, I mean, these aren't something that are highly literary that they would just be like, what, you know, I have no idea what this means. And some literary things, you almost have to have to have, to have an English degree to understand them, you know, or like an MFA in poetry or something. And so I thought these would be poems that as things progress, they learn about metaphors and symbols and there's a progression of like similes and they build up to more complex poems. And as they're writing poems the whole time in like their, their, their journal. And so I tried to make a logical progression of the poems that they would be reading in class and so forth. And they're writing to where it's just a progression to where finally they understand how these famous poems came into being and they can take things that have happened in their own lives and kind of do the same thing, maybe not the same level to be famous, but they've been empowered to write something that is very meaningful to them. And he's he's trying to honor them along the way. And he does so at the end at the last chapter. He's like, uh, I think the line is, uh, you know, thank you uh, for putting so much from the class and take what you learned here the rest of your life, something like that. Yeah, very good. And I want to ask you, speaking of the end of the book, there is a name mentioned at the end of the book. And I wanted to ask you, uh, to give some context to who that is. Billy Jean Kelder. Who is Billy Jean Kelder? Billy Jean Kelder is my mom. So uh, her maiden name was Billy Jean Huffman. I talked to her, they said, I know a Billy Jean Huffman. I'm like, are you kidding me? On the Billy Jean Huffman? <laughs> and so my father's name was Gilbert Kelder Jr. from Rosendale, New York in the Catskill Mountains. Mom was born right in Pikeville, Pikeville High School, University of Kentucky. And, um, so the thing about storytelling, uh, she got congestive heart failure. Um, this was in 2007, and I won't go into that. It was a heartbreaking experience, but I was living with her and helping take care of her. And uh, oh, she was my best friend, my mom. And so when I was writing the book, the, the sort of wistful thing is she never got to read it, and it's dedicated to her and everything. And my mom, she would just give me a big hug and just said, I love you, like Chris, like what a great thing to honor me. And and so uh, it's interesting. I was um, uh, 
I was in, uh, I was shopping the other day and I ran into a guy. Um, it's, it's a long story, but um, I was talking about being a tennis pro and a writer and like a filmmaker. And you say it all in one breath, it sounds like, you know, a whole lot to accomplish. Well, it took a long time to accomplish all that. And so I was talking to him and he said, I can tell you're a man of faith. I'd say that about Christian or, you know, or, or Catholic or faith-based or anything. And I, I took it to heart. He said, well, I, I taught at Asbury Seminary, you know, and Wilbur. And I thought, I said, well, thank you. And, and I looked at him and I said, uh, how old are you? And he said, I'm 84 years old. And I got very emotional because I said, if my father was alive today, because he's passed away, he would be 84 years old. And I said, uh, like, he never saw, I might mention my mom, they never saw a poem, you know, film, anything creative I did that they helped, you know, nurture. And I think they would be really proud of me, you know, if they had, had the opportunity. He looked right at me, pointed, said, you're darn right, you know, they would be, or he would be. It was just like my dad was right there saying, good job, keep up the good work, I'm proud of you. And and so when I was in high school, right from high school, newspaper like i was journalist of the year and that's what you know, for the whole high school that's why i was journalist major uk came about being a journalist and and uh but they never said you know be a doctor be a lawyer have a successful business they always said just do what you will make you happy they never questioned it and so i had freedom to be creative and do what i wanted with a lot of friction about just you know make sure you're making enough money or which some people are faced with and they don't they, they can't pursue what they're really passionate about if they're in the arts. Yeah, very well said. Very well said. So, Christopher, as we finish up with you today, tell us a little bit, first of all, if anyone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about this book or any other projects that you've completed or what you've got working uh, or coming up in, in working in the future, how can they get in contact with you, first of all? And then where can they get copies of The Secret of, Co- of Cobb Creek? Um, it's available on Barnes & Noble and Amazon. Um, if they want to know more about me, they can um, go to my website and there's a contact page. My website is christopherkelder.wordpress.com. Uh, there's a, uh, I think there's like a homepage, an about page, uh, my books. I have all my books on my, my book page, a film page, a blog that I'm going to start and a contact page. And they can just send me an email they want to know more about me, I'd be happy to respond. Um, there's everything my about page, if you like in high school, if I'm a writer, it's all on there. And uh, I do know that they can order the book uh, through Barnes, I mean, through uh, Joseph Beth Booksellers, or they can go to the store there and buy one. They, after they had, they ordered a bunch of books and they had some left over after my reading signing. Very good. Our guest today has been Christopher Kelder. He is a writer, a screen writer, also a filmmaker. He was born and raised in Lexington, Kentucky. He's taught writing seminars at the Carnegie Center and a variety of other places, and he is the author of the new book we've been talking about today. It's called The Secret of Cobb Creek, a Depression-era story of Eastern Kentucky. Christopher, congratulations on the book, and uh, we're so glad to have you on. Thanks so much for the conversation today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We want to take a moment as we finish up this episode of Now Appalachia to give a special shout out to the executive producer of our program, as well as all of the podcasting that you hear on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Her name is Pam Stack. So Pam, thank you for all the off-site and behind-the-scenes work and technical support that you provide. We also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And that is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. 
listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program, and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.